My name is Gabriela Salgado. I'm the artistic director of Tetuhi. Welcome, everybody. Take your seats. I'm pleased to welcome you today to this panel discussion uh, that is connected to the exhibition Wayscape that is taking place at Silo 6 here in the Winnia Quarter, only 200 meters away from here. Um, we opened this exhibition yesterday. Um, is the co-commission between Tetuhi, our organization here in Auckland, an organization that deals with environmental issues and art and the way that artists can contribute to the discussion on the environment that is located in the UK, is called Invisible Dust, and also with the Humber Museum Partnership. So we are um, doing this um, project uh, together to allow the artist sitting next to me, Gail Chong Kwan, who came from the UK with a fabulous project that addresses um, waste in a massive scale. So I invite you, if you haven't seen it, to go to the silo and visit the exhibition uh, made of 6,000 milk plastic bottles. This panel discussion is being designed to um, let the artists um, Gail Chong Kwan and Alex Monteith at the end of the table here, and Dr. Mike Joy, who is an environmental scientist and activist, to discuss the impact of the dairy industry in New Zealand and um, in the environment, of course, and also the way in which artists can provide some um, clues or thinking or awareness um, that might help the process of cleaning our act in relation to nature. So um, I would like to start by, uh, first of all, thanking you all for being here. It's great to be in, in your company. You are amazing, all of you, and thanking the audience. Uh, I want to also acknowledge and thank the Oakland Arts Festival for hosting Wayscape. They, they are doing amazing stuff and programming a lot of incredible things around Auckland and Wayscape is part of the festival. So, so um, I will just give you a little bit of information about the panelists, starting by Gail Chong Kwan, who is a British artist whose photographs, sculptures, events and installations are exhibited internationally, both in galleries and in the public realm. Her work explores simulacra and sublime, the sublime, through constructed environments, imagined futures, ritual experiences, and sensory registers. Mike Joy, Dr. Mike Joy, was a late started in academia. He first attended university in his early 30s at Massey Palmerston North, where he received a BSc, MSc, and PhD in ecology. He began lecturing in ecology and environmental science in 2003 and became an outspoken advocate for environmental protection after seeing firsthand the decline in freshwater health in New Zealand. Mike has received a number of awards for his work, which include an Ecology in Action Award from the New Zealand Ecological Society, the inaugural New Zealand University's Critic and Conscience Award in 2016, and was a semi-finalist for the 2018 Kiwi Bank New Zealander of the Year. Congratulations. Alex Monteith works explore the political dimensions of culture engaged in thermal overland ownership, history, and occupation. 
Her works traverse political movements, contemporary sports, culture and social activities. Projects often take place in large scale or extreme geographies. She's also a member of the collective Local Time and is sometime political environmental activist. Sometime. It's less than part-time. Um, I, ha I, ha I hadn't heard that expression. It's really original. Um, and she's also a surfing champion, or was. You were a cha surfing champion. She's very important because it connects us with the water again. Um, so I will start by throwing uh, a few ideas to the panel and, and invite any of you to react. You can ask for the mic because unfortunately we have only one and we'll pass it around. And uh, one of the things is we discussed at the beginning of the project is that artists do not point the finger at things. They just address issues that preoccupy humans in general, but artists seem to be because they are sensible people. And um, they think a lot and in depth about issues in society and in the world. They tend to be the voice for society. And this is how I see it as a curator, that artists teach us through their um, works in ways that are not strictly pedagogical, but can produce some kind of pedagogy. So can I start by you, Gail, and ask you what motivated this project, which um, I have to say Wayscape as a sculptural installation made of milk bottles started in London in 2012, where I, I saw it there, because I used to live in London, and it, it employed many, many more bottles than the iteration that we have here in Auckland. It employed 20,000 bottles. Um, so can you tell us more about the origins of this project and what motivates it? Um, thank you, Gabriella, and thank you for all your hard work, um, not just in uh, curating the project, but also she did a lot of the stapling of the milk bottles so that we had her working very hard, um, which sounds like quite a trivial comment, but actually, I think going back to your introduction about the relationship between artists and politics and about how artists kind of role in society, I was discussing with Mike earlier today how my um, kind of trajectory to becoming an artist actually began with my first degree in post-colonial um, sub-Saharan African politics, which sounds like a very far away thing from what I'm doing, but actually it wasn't at all. But I, I experienced a kind of profound realization during my first degree that I did not want to um, kind of, uh, I did not want to do the pedagogical, this is how I think you should think. And I think by being an artist, I've sort of changed almost like the verb. So your, your um, preoccupations and the things that really concern you or, or, or make you feel passionately angry about or want to do something about, they don't change, but the verb as to how you um, kind of think about that or do that can change. And being an artist means that um, in the same way that when you make works, you end up involving, you can involve people in and in communities and contexts in which you work. So the fact that Gabriella, as a curator, wasn't kind of some distanced person from this project, but actually was kind of completely hands-on. And actually there's a politics in the production of work, and that politics in the production of work can also be equated to um, the kind of politics um, in terms of activism and in terms of how you, you things across. So I think I realized that rather than wanting to prophesize about what I thought the world should be, as an artist you can do it in quite different way. You can, can do it 
you can um, make things in ways that articulate or invite people in in sideways ways. And sometimes those sideways ways or kind of experiential um, understanding can be something more powerful than just than just words. So going back to Gabriella's question about the initial start of Wayscape, actually it came from something quite similar to uh, Mike and, and, and my discussion, because it's the first time that we've met um, today when he arrived. And he said, I, I kind of, I'm sorry for putting words in your mouth, but he said, I kind of ended up doing this because I was so angry at what I, I've become this because I was so angry at what I experienced. And actually, as an artist, one of the things that came about from working in on a project in working with communities in Colombia who had to build, they've built where they live on the waste dumps of um, second largest city there in Medellin. And then as an artist, I also funded myself through art college by working in catering in London. And the extent of food waste was so shocking that I couldn't compute it. And then in working in Colombia, the extent of waste that, um, that was being produced by the city that people had to quite literally live on and build out of, I couldn't compute it either. Somehow that kind of, that then comes into your work and that becomes something you're trying to process, that kind of, that anger. And it's almost like a childlike anger of like, this just doesn't make sense. And I think I've kind of kept that. Thank you. Uh, can I ask Mike to give us his perspective on because your your focus is on the health of the freshwater ways in New Zealand, that is the 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 work of your life, and uh, can you tell us um, more about the impact of farming in in the waterways and how that relates in your view with what you have seen today, the work that artists are making and the thinking around waste. Yeah, I was, I was um, really interested in what you said about artists kind of seeing the world. And when I think about my my background, of uh, actually my first job when I left school was on a dairy farm and I milked cows for a year and I, I loved that life and I had no idea that later on I'd end up fighting it so hard. But but it was done at a different scale back <laughs> then. But I think that... Um, and then... And, and I think, you know, that whole sort of life that I have of... of um, I, I went on to, I was sailing and, and building houses and driving trucks and doing all sorts of different jobs, but, but I, didn't, I wasn't looking at the world like an artist would. And, I, and it wasn't until I got started doing science and I started realising what was happening to our rivers that I started getting really angry. And I went from the quietest, shyest person in the world to this, this angry guy who's always speaking out now, every opportunity I can. So it was a real transformation that came about through anger and still... <laughs> And it's still anger that drives me, and I guess that, um, and I and I just I don't stop finding things to make me angry. Um, I just find more things to make <laughs> me angry and make me angrier. And and I, and when I when I see all those plastic milk bottles, and I think six thousand, and and in when you think of dairying in New Zealand, that the two percent of the milk that's produced is sold here. So you think that's a lot. Think about 98%. And it's not all going to end up in plastic bottles, but it ends up doing all sorts of damage all over the place. Um, and, it and it doesn't do much for health either. And, it, and a lot of it... I, I, so I look at where it goes, and it makes me angry because it replaces breast milk, and it's through huge marketing by the companies that we're involved in to convince women that, that, that this infant formula is better than breast, breast milk. I mean, I've been relating to everybody today this thing that made me angry so much recently, a PhD student who's Vietnamese who told me about her baby in Vietnam and about how she was spat on and hissed at for breastfeeding because the, 
marketing is so powerful that you are harming your child by breastfeeding it and not buying this infant formula, and we are part of that. Right through to my recent work that I've been doing in, in Canterbury, where um, there's, I mean, I, it's, I've, I'm trying to sort of summarise this really, really quickly, but there's uh, some really huge studies recently, particularly one from Denmark, showing that there was 9 million people in this 25-year-longitudinal study showing that quite low levels of nitrate in drinking water are, are highly associated with colorectal cancer. <coughs> we have the highest rates of colorectal cancer in the world in New Zealand, and the highest rates in New Zealand are in Canterbury. And when I looked at the drinking water sample levels in, in Canterbury, then uh, driving through the countryside and taking 113 samples, 80% of them were higher than the level that gives you a 15% increase in the chances of getting colorectal cancer. So a huge proportion of the people in Canterbury now get drinking water that exceeds that limit that makes them much more likely to get colorectal cancer. Um, and this has happened in such a short time. I, we were going to hook it up to the screen, but I can't. I show these guys a graphic that I've got of just looking at a map of Canterbury and the clock ticking over in years starting in 1970, and you just can see the whole landscape. And if you look really, really hard, you can pick out the dairy farms. And then in 2000, it's like this amazing cancer that just goes whoosh. And then within 20 years, the whole landscape is covered in dairy farms, this massive conversion that happened there. And because it's gravelly soils that are just outwashed plains, then those, those aquifers have become contaminated with nitrates really, really quickly. And that's how we get to this problem that we, that we have today. So it's this, this kind of the shock. Another ang I was angry enough about what the nitrate was doing to the rivers and to the fish and to the ecosystems, but then to find that, that human health link that's going on here and the frustration with, with dealing with the people. And then to kind of make me even angrier is that what I, and by highlighting that, and I'm, I'm, I can give you, a, uh, tell you about where to find the study and, and the paper that I wrote, but is that what I'm doing by highlighting the, 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 the state of the, of the drinking water in Christchurch is, is the Coca-Cola company will be loving me because everybody will be, and, and understandably, will be buying bottled water. So this just hi highlights this other massive issue that we have in this country, where corporates come here, get the really clean water for nothing. So Coca-Cola at Pataru gets our water for nothing, the very, very best, sells it to us at more than the price of petrol in most cases, because this government won't deal with the issue of ownership of it. So they have that, the, you know, John Key's classic, no one owns water in this country, whereas, whereas huge amounts of money are traded and land values are locked billions of dollars tied up in the value of water, but no one owns water. And, and by highlighting these issues, I'm, I'm helping these people out. So, you know, like, so y you can get it while I'm angry, right? <laughs> we'll get back to those points and also to the fact that there was a march that you missed because you accepted this invitation. And I want to go back to that march and why that march was organized. But, um, Alex, we, we've been working at a, a film that you are making collaboratively with Natalie Robertson um, lately, and, and um, I'm, I'm interested in the approach that you're taking to documenting by filming with drones and documenting deforestation and the effects of deforestation. So can you give us your own angle on this problem? 
I think um, when I uh, um, thank you for the invitation to be here. This is um, it's really awesome. And when I thought about my personal connection to Gail's work, it really is through like the, the common kind of ground is is actually around the, the milk that's in that you know we're talking milk, and then that the leap over to the Waiapu, which is the ancestral river for Ngāti Whārau, and also common river in the Whakapapa of my collaborator. Uh, and partner in um, kind of art production of many years, Natalie Robertson, and on the project that we're working on as well is Graham Aitkins, who's a cousin of hers and an award-winning um, Department of Conservation worker and um, re recognised for his work in saving seeds of trees that are about to, uh, that are on the cusp. He's working with, um, you know, the last 25 trees of certain endemic species in the Hikurangi kind of catchment area. So there's three of us that are working on a current project. But the reason we're there is the ideology around grass and um, the effects of deforestation with the agendas 100 years ago towards making land productive at any cost. And in particular in that region, in the Waipu, which is a couple of hours north of Gisborne in the East Cape, um, the opening up of lands that are extremely steep to um, the ideology of grass. <laughs> And um, so this river is one of the most sedimented in New Zealand, if not the, I think it actually is the most sedimented river in New Zealand. Yeah, and, and it's recognised as a global case. Um, scientists do come here to study it, but a massive, um, it's very important to me in working in this project and Natalie Robertson that we are working with Graham as a, in, in a flat structure. So we have a cons conservation worker and two of us that aren't, um, I work in representation and aesthetics um, because one of the things he has been struggling with is the visi is visibi visibility issues around a very subtle narrative and it's been a slow motion disaster that was an effect of um, a hundred year old kind of um, speed up in deforestation in that area. So in the era that the um, Waiapu was de deforested, uh, that was running four times faster than the current rate of deforestation in the tropics and around at the moment. So, uh, but 100 years later, exactly, uh, we were filming there um, 100 years ago, so to Armistice Day, World War One, the returning soldiers were given land there and the soldiers' ballots, and that was, wasn't given to any Māori soldiers. Um, the land was passed on and therefore into private land ownership and into farming, and so... Highly, the, the sedimentation is causing huge effects. And I guess maybe the angle, I, I did win the Irish National Surf Champ through a kink in biographical detail, <laughs> being born in Tauiwiti, New Zealand. But um, it's meant that I've lived with the sea in the practice of my life for a long time. And I've spent a lot of time trying to think about how art can work with museums to try and make gestures of connection over really difficult ranges of geography, like very far away places or very difficult. Um, and I've done some projects that involve getting the audience into the sea as part of the pedagogical exchange. You know, so you have a knowledge holder, a mana whenua, um, ecologist or whatever, get the audience to the sea. We have a big problem with the Waiapu and it's just trying to overcome representation difficulties and strategies. Um, scientists have found it pretty hard to even document up there because as Graham says, when they put the pegs in the ground, they come back a year later to measure the sediment coming out of some of the landslides and they can't re-find their pegs and they're like two metres tall and he keeps telling them it's the sediment has washed down out of the landslides and buried the pegs. <laughs> so thankfully now with digital um, <laughs> sort of technology that might not be so much of an issue but yeah. So um, 
So I guess when Mike is here, I'm very interested to hear anything more he can add around nitrates because not only is sedimentation an area of interest that I have, it's also when Graham was talking about fish not being able to come up the rivers to spawn and getting stuck in dry locks. Um, these the statistical analysis side of things, Mike, you know, like the kind of the um, change of understanding of water from good, uh, those kind of things, I'm pretty interested in that, those kind of things that you bring to this, so I'll just pass it back that way. Oh, okay, so well, I mean, if you think about um, the things that impact on our on our, on our our fresh waters, well, there's basically four of them that we deal with, and it's the two nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, and there's sediment and, and E. coli, which is pathogen, so the things that make us sick. Um, but they don't, I mean, the things in the river don't care about pathogens, you know, the fish don't care. It's only humans that, and the pathogens come from, from animals, other mammals that make us sick from their waste, the, the, the fecal oral pathway. So that, but the other four biggies, so, so, um, and for our native fish, then most of them are diadromous. They go to and from the sea. They have a real big connection with the sea, much more so than most other countries in the world. And so the, the effects of that of that sediment are uh, a huge, um, uh, and and the the phosphate is locked into the sediment, and the algae that causes oxygen depletion for the life in the river. So the, the physical effects of the sediment, the sediment blocks the interstitial spaces in the rocks and boulders that the fish live in, but the uh, the nutrients that are bound up in that grow excess amounts of, of algae as well, and the algae takes the oxygen out of the system and, and offshore as well. So the offshore effects of sedimentation often get forgotten as well. So um, we've basically, there's only one harbour left, the Kaipara, where, where the snappers still breed because all of the, the eelgrass beds have been smothered by the sediment that comes down. So it's not like it ends in the rivers or on the land, it's the effects on the oceans and the ocean fisheries and all that kind of kind of thing as well. Was that what you were thinking about, Alex? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's massive, it's interconnected. I mean, and that's where we were, kind of where we started our discussion today was about, um, I, I guess, the, the Maori or indigenous worldview and scientists, kind of Western science versus, you know, indigenous. And and, and I'm, I guess I'm lucky in a way, or uh, it's the way I think anyway, but an ecologist's worldview, uh, an ecologist's view is that everything is interconnected. There are no silos within the systems, which is very similar to, I think, to an, to an indigenous worldview of interconnectedness. And, and so that's really informed and uh, made my kind of understanding and, and communicating much, much easier, I think, because there is no separation from, from that. Yeah, so I'm wandering off a little bit. Yeah, thank you for that. In fact, that connects with the fact that um, you, Gail, made a new piece of work for the Silas exhibition that uh, consists of a series of headdresses. And the headdresses are made of um, out of photographs um, sourced from Google Earth, from um, online photographs that have been printed and then woven following uh, what you learn about Maori weaving techniques and uh, collage and put together as headdresses so they can be worn in the body. And uh, the essence of this is that we go back to the idea that we connect with nature because we are nature. And this is the fundamental difference between Western 
ways of thinking about nature and indigenous ways of thinking about nature. So uh, tell us what happened when, when you heard about this Maori saying, I am the water, the water, I'm the river, the river is, is me. Because that is somehow behind this idea for the work. Yeah, it's a, a really interesting question. I was just thinking about what you were saying, Mike, that sometimes you'll be you'll have certain approaches and then you'll find other approaches that echo or that um, inform those. And I think there's something in there's something in my own background being Chinese Mauritian and Scottish and aspects of my cultural background that have also always touched upon water. Mauritius is a very small island. And a lot of the work that I've done previously uh, has been around, and a lot of my um, reason I did my first degree in sub-Saharan uh, um, politics, uh, post-colonial politics, was also a way of looking at the way in which this island, surrounded by sea, has been so affected by both colonialism, but also kind of post-colonialism in terms of um, the tourist industry as well. So when I came in, when I was invited um, to come and make this work, which connects up with a, a much longer project that I'm doing in the UK around politics of food and links up to a Victorian walled garden. Um, I've been working with the, the, the gardeners um, there and then with the British Library um, around um, sort of transportation of, of food as well and the politics of food. When I was invited to come, and I came, there was something of both an echoing and a challenging of um, my own worldviews. And I do feel like the experience of being here has kind of profoundly changed me. Um, I went to Auckland Museum and did some research there around uh, weaving, not just as a technical bringing together of different things, but as an interconnected. And it's something that I've explored in my work previously, but I was really struck by the experience of something that's called the Samoan Sharing Day there. Um, and Auckland Museum, like many um, collections of objects and museums around the world, are, are trying to deal with or trying to kind of uh, manage um, claims of repatriation of objects. So there's a, uh, there was a Samoan Sharing Day there, which involved people from the Samoan community coming and being able to touch the objects, obviously with gloves on, and. Um, and then they were invited to contribute their knowledge to the very inadequate labels that exist in Auckland Museum, which are often really more about the person who the objects were gifted to. And my sense of there was one particular moment where um, some, I, was, I spent um, it's nearly a whole day there, but uh, they talked about a particular thing that looked almost like a necklace that had been described as a necklace. And they said, but that's not a necklace, that's part of that which is then part of this um, this thing that we did, which is then part of which is part of the answer, and it's that interconnectedness that actually you can't separate these things and the kind of the classification and almost kind of objectification of things as being separate from interconnected systems, I think is is kind of Im impossible. So there was something of me being both sort of challenged and also hearing some kind of echo by the research. I did here because I think there's something as an artist coming from different places, coming to another place, which I've not spent a huge amount of time here. I don't have the same um, connection. There's uh, there's a kind of fear that you bring of thinking I, I cannot come and be a sort of another colonial <laughs> construct in this sort of thing. So what do you do? You have to kind of connect it through your own, through yourself and through your body. 
Um, yes, I know I've slightly veered <laughs> off into it. But I, th I, th I think, you know, I find that uh, my work is becoming much more kind of interconnectedness of, of, of body, object, touch. And we had a, a really interesting um, uh, afternoon session today with uh, blind and, and partially sighted people. Uh, and actually, I've got very, I'm very short-sighted. So actually, this kind of sensory connected approach is something that's always been part of part of my practice. Um, I feel like I've veered off slightly. Um, so in the sensory tour, it was a way of, I'm really passionate about knowledge being, and I think this is partly my rejection of just um, from starting out feeling that I wanted to work for the UN and change the world and do kind of politics, of actually experiential sensory and emotional knowledge, I think is often really undervalued. And those can be those kind of lightning bolt moments where you understand something on a much deeper level than just in intellectually or academically. Um, and today in the sensory tour, it was a way of engaging in a non-visual um, way with what I've been thinking about and the work and the process. And actually the process of the collection and the weaving and the, it all becomes interconnected. And a lot of the work that I make, I don't even know if it's art, doesn't really matter to me and I don't really know where the work is um, and I find that that some sort of way of trying to articulate this inter interconnectedness yeah. thank you for that um, Mike I was um, reading that you co-edited you edited a, a book called from mountains to sea solving New Zealand freshwater crisis in which many authors contributed among them some Māori writers. And uh, we were talking about today the idea that, that, that what, what connects um, things is the, the, to get to the fresh water crisis that we are in, is the heavy industrialization of the landscape that started happening with the conversion of, of uh, forest into, into grasslands for, for cattle and uh, the degradation of the environment followed and what we are seeing now. Um, we are going back to the idea that Māori worldviews are fundamental in what you do and you were saying that you feel at home in the place you teach because it's a, it's a Māori university and how ecology connects with uh, Māori worldviews, the idea of being connected to nature. Therefore, if you're connected, you don't want to damage it because it's part of you. Um, if you are disconnected is when you don't care what you put in it and uh, the amount of waste that you produce, etc. So what are the problems? Let's, let's try to, to, to pinpoint the problems. Uh, maximizing returns, lack of long-term vision. You mentioned all this in a recent interview that I was very interested in how clear you were when um, constructing your argument. Um, what about leadership? Is, is the new government going to do better? What are your views of the future in terms of how to stop this disaster? Yeah, <coughs> there's a lot of questions in there. Um, I, I did want to make it clear that, um, so what we, I was talking about is that, that I, I teach um, sometimes at the Te Wananga o Rokawa in Otaki. And so that's, and it's such a shock to me not that when I walk away from that, I love being there, I love the feeling, and I can't, I can sort of, I could try to describe it, but 
But when I walk back to my university, which is now um, Victoria University, it feels so sterile and, and, you know, so much about treating students as numbers and all that kind of thing, so different from that. I mean, that was the feeling. So, so where, I, where I am now in Victoria University is not, not the same as that at all. Um, I guess that um, I, so, you know, I've, I've been really, really critical of government local especially, but central government, because that's what drives local government. So that example of what happened in Canterbury, um, I, I don't know how many of you are aware, but that um, Nick Smith, the minister of, uh, in the previous government of the environment, sacked the regional council in Canterbury. So about 2010, 11, when, they were, when, when that development really was getting underway and the regional council were trying to stop it, the central government said, no, we can't have this, and they, they sacked a democratically elected regional council and put their own people in there. And, and it, it hasn't, that they've got halfway back to democracy, half of, the, so six of the 12 councillors are now uh, uh, are voted in, but there's still only half a voice in that system. So, so that kind of, you know, political control. With this new government, um, I'm working, I'm on a bunch of working groups. I'm probably spending more than half of my time in at Ministry for the Environment on working groups. I'm also on the environmental reference group for, uh, for uh, Landcorp, which has now called itself PAMU, which is our you know, government farmer and probably the, well, I'm pretty sure is the biggest dairy farmer in New Zealand, definitely the biggest farmer in New Zealand. And so I'm involved in these processes constantly and, and there's so much agreement, scientific agreement on, on where the limits should be. There's a lot of involvement in, of Māori in this. I'm really it's so nice for me to be working with um, the, the Māori group where we have people, individuals, who will stand up and, like, was Dover Samuels the other day, and he would just, just talk straight, directly. The problem is the regional councils, you know, it's the local governments, the failures there. Um, you know, this so so rare to see, to hear honesty like that. But what, we we work together. There's a great consensus in the room of people from from all parts of, even from industry, where they understand the issues and how we have to change. Um, but then, the dilemma is that for this government to actually pass the kind of regulations that we need to protect our waters, because we've got fresh waters and our climate, we've gone so far that the kind of level of change that we need, I doubt that many people in this room are aware of just how much change we have to make. And so what will happen is they'll get voted out. If they do what we need, this, this, this is the dilemma. They'll, they can just you know, do a bit of incrementalism, which is what it's all about, shift some deck chairs. That we're on the Titanic, it's like this. They can either do something and, and get the ship back floating again, and if they do, they'll they'll likely get voted out because most people have no idea. And so this is, so when I think about this, I think, why do people have no idea? And, and a huge part of it is the power of, of industry and big business to, to, to put across the alternative. That, you know, I mean, the oil and gas industry and their fighting to, to deny climate change is so much like the tobacco industry did with their and they're so powerful. You, you've got the example here in Auckland just recently where New, Daring New Zealand, without a doubt the biggest polluter of fresh water in New Zealand, have bought into NZME, so who own the Herald and they, and they, they own the, 
bunch of the commercial radio stations. And, and they, here's the classic tactic. You can watch it. I don't watch TV and I don't listen to commercial radio, so I don't know, but people point it out to me. There's all these ads in the paper and on the radio about how you can do your bit by sweeping your drive or picking up plastic from the beach and all that. They take it and they individual and they blame you for it. <coughs> and, 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 you know, that's the, that's the classic. They've got all the money in the world and they can turn that around. And, and so that, that's, that's kind of the enemy in a way, is that, is that to do the changes that we need to make the changes. And the other thing that they do is they make, they make the changes sound bad. You know, so, so the kind of world that we would live in if we were doing the right thing, which would be much more about communities, farms would be incredibly diverse, they wouldn't be the monocultures we have now, there would be people back on the land. The whole world would be so different. They, their job is to portray that as Luddites going back to the Dark Ages, you know, make it all sound negative because... The last thing that they want you to know is that you need to stop buying all the rubbish that they make. And so, you know, there's this, th that's the tension that I, that I kind of feel, and it's really, really frustrating to, to think that we put so much effort into this, the groups that we're working on around fresh water, knowing in the back of our minds the whole time that if, if this government does do what's needed, and we're really clear and there's a lot of consensus about what's needed, then, then they're gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're totally. They, they're, they're on the way out. They're funded by. Their only advertising comes from those big. I mean, the Herald would never have, you know, been allowed. Would never have allowed someone to buy them out if they weren't on the way out themselves, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. That's starting to be depressing. <laughs> so. So that's, yeah, that's what happens to all of us when we start thinking this way. So I've been thinking a lot, preparing for this and, you know, working with Gail in this project. And, of course, throughout um, my, my curatorial activity, I come across a lot of artists who are concerned with these, these issues, you know, the, the state of the sea, the ocean is in the terrible state at the moment we are talking about it but it's been in terrible state for a long time the thing is we are talking about it now we are exposing the facts we see in the effects so we are now aware that we are beyond tipping point the famous tipping point that was quoted um you know by ecologists a few years ago and said you know we need to do something before we reach the you know the, the, the terrible state in, of climate change being irreversible. It is irreversible. We know that now. So my question would be, from our humble position of being cultural workers and artists and curators and you guys here, wherever you do in life, I mean, we're not policymakers and we're not big corporations. So what, what can we do to adapt to what's already happening and we cannot change? Definitely, we see the effects of climate change already, the disaster that's happening in, with climate around the world. What can we do to contribute to this process of making it less painful, less <coughs> less destructive? What can we do to um, improve a little corner, a little natural world around us? Um, 
I will start by Alex. And then we can move on to, and after we do this, we would like to hear from you, your options, your ideas of what you think we should do. <coughs> um, I should say, Gabrielle and I were earlier in the year at the Under Her Eye conference, which was a climate change conference for women, and it had Christina Figueres there, who was the chair um, for the Tokyo uh, Paris um, Climate Change Agreement. But I was, so in thinking about what could what can individuals do on that smaller scale and uh, and I've meditated a lot about the role of art what how aesthetic f might relate to politics and I have had a practice in my life of kind of having one bay at a time one oceanic kind of arena in which you have and you explore your sphere of influence and you take small steps right so I've always had this kind of and then I've had great um, partnerships and collaborations so I kind of we go to this conference and there's various sort of um, incredibly interesting people speaking at that. There are lawyers, um, lawyers who are ecologists working for oil companies, things like that. One of the things that really struck me was at the end of Margaret Atwood's keynote address and, you know, people are also asking what can we do and her considered opinion was, after all the analysis she's done about ecocide, um, is we need to be concentrating on the question of the rainforest that is the single biggest thing that can kind of, if if all of the combined forces can, um, in terms of impact around the question of climate change. But what was so, what is so hard to kind of consider about that is when you are practicing based in um, Aotearoa, New you know, New Zealand, and Te Moana Kua, is that your obligations are within your region. And I sort of found this is massive kind of conflict about something that was happening in a well it, it seems like there's a global situation it's very hard to find an inroad into and then we have our whakapapa obligations here through in my case as to iwi that's in partnership with people that are really working on ecological initiatives um it's been a really hard space to kind of be in and i tried to distill something out of my practice and that situation of thinking for you today and i so um to remind me of what that was <laughs> Um, I felt in the end, though, what can art do? It's sort of less the question that, hang on, so what art can do is possibly less the question here for in terms of activity in the Pacific. It's more around who's guiding you and what have they done and achieved in the service uh, of the environment and kaitiakitanga. And so in the distillation of my practice and what's happening next, it's... It's actually around that, and so hence working with people like Graham where there's already existing very strong ecological strategies that have come out of a lifetime of practice. And so if I guess I feel like if we're tied up with what's happening in the rainforest, um, Graham Aiken's work holding seeds that are the last remaining seeds of something from a, a local ecology, um, you know, these, there's many other strategies he's involved in, but it's actually just about working with people to find out what help they need and marrying your skill set. Um, I've had to back down and come back to regional regional obligations. So that's where I'm at with uh, this kind of problematic at the moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's so tricky, isn't it? You can do your stuff at home, and that's obviously really important. If everybody did their thing in their backyard, then, then we could change it. But um, I, I s sort of think that education is so important, and... And, and making people aware, and, and, and I guess that art must be one of the best. I don't know, I'm not an artist, I wish I was. And, um, but 
you know that that's that's the way to communicate it. I realise that with my trying to get the message across, that telling a story rather, you know, that making it making what I say into a story works so much better, and making like a graphic, like the one that I couldn't show you about the spread of dairy farms, gets people way more than if I tried to explain or said there was a 70% increase, plus or minus whatever, over however many years. It's that seeing it that, that does it, so, yeah. Yeah, I was just going <coughs> to echo what you both said, that maybe it's in the sort of interconnectedness or interstices of, um, of, of different approaches and practices that uh, you can, things get connected in, in, in stronger ways. And I think the idea of a kind of aesthetic practice is, is so problematic because there's no such again we're almost going back to that kind of categorization and classification and separateness and um i think i think we should work together on something yeah, mike yeah, i think yeah, we should all work yeah, yeah. you know so this idea that sometimes i'm not even sure what i do is is art i don't even really care sometimes <laughs> what I'm, you know and actually sometimes it's that that it's connecting up different knowledge bases and making that um yeah I think that's probably one particular way forward. It's very difficult to find very clear answers to everything. But I think we're all feeling our way through it. And if we sort of feel our way together with our hands holding on to each other sometimes, it becomes a bit more, a bit of a stronger way forward. <coughs> I was remembering Margaret Atwood talking in, in that, um, she was in conversation during that conference at the British Library in, in London that we were part of last year. We were very fortunate to be here. They were amazing women. It was called Women, uh, women and the Environment <coughs> uh, under her eye. And it connected to The Handmaid's Tale, of course, this idea of under his eye on her. So it was like a feminist, a uh, combination of feminist um, thinking with ecological thinking and women from different fields and um, of expertise coming and, and speaking. And um, I was reading her The Year of the Flood that I recommend to everyone because uh, I just want to say this as the last remark. The, the heroes in her book are the gardeners and they are a bunch of radical gardeners who plant their own food in roofs in the buildings of these ruined cities that have been affected by apocalypse. This, this is post-apocalyptic. Um, landscape where people have no um, no security outside of their little refuge in these roofs, and the gardeners live off their produce. So you know it's not impossible. We haven't reached that point. We can still plant our food, and it's growing. It's something growing around the world. But also, I I, I want to say I admire <laughs> I admire Vandana Shiva, who is a scientist, an Indian um, scientist uh, who has been uh, advocating for the end of monoculture. And monoculture as a philosophical principle is wrong. And we see people, I won't name them because they don't deserve it, erecting walls and trying to separate people and you know, creating borders and demonizing <coughs> others and you know, creating racist narratives that are so outdated and stupid. And all that is about monoculture too. It's about, you know, we have we have power and we are the truth and the rest are not. And you know, all that is toxic and is killing us. And in the same way, the way we treat the environment, one culture, you know, I come from South America 
our environments have been destroyed by monoculture. Suddenly, they discovered that soya was giving more money than having many crops. And they planted soya everywhere, and soya destroyed the soil, destroyed our countries. And also, there's less requirement for labor, so he has destroyed the country socially and economically, because many people went on um, unemployed because of soya not needing hands, you know. So there is a lot of monoculture that is that is wrong, and I think that is my contribution. I think we, sh we need to address this as a problem, as well as planting our own food. Can I just, sorry, it, um, Gabriella just made me think about, it's that interconnectedness again, because um, the island where my father's from, Mauritius, was a colonial monoculture of sugarcane, but there was a direct relationship with the Tate and Lyle factory, which is down the road for me in East London. And this, um, so, you know, how we consume, what we consume has very, very real, very tangible, very destructive effects, not just on the land, but in Mauritius on the indentured laborers who effectively were brought over as, as slaves and then worked out their, their kind of passage on the land. So, um, that interconnectedness, perhaps making that visible and making our decisions with that consciousness um, together <laughs> must be some kind of way forward. Yeah. Uh, it just made me, um, <coughs> when, when Gabrielle said that, it's so, so milk is our soy, you know, South America was soy, milk is the New Zealand monoculture, or it's a ryegrass monoculture to grow the milk. But the, the core of that is... is, is not measuring the right things, okay? So, uh, and are we exactly the same in South America? The, the externalities are not measured, right? The only so dairy in New Zealand is the backbone of the economy. You'll hear that all the time, right? But we've done, we've, uh, there's a couple of studies that I can quote. One that we've done where we looked at what it would cost to clean up the environmental impacts of dairy in New Zealand. And for 2010, it comes out, it came out to $16 billion, plus or minus a big range, depending on, on what you measured. But basically what it brought in, it was, it was a nil-sum game. If, if, you, if you paid the environmental costs of dairy, you wouldn't bother. We only, it's only profitable because one bunch of people get to make the profit and leave the costs for the rest of the people. You know, this, this whole idea of, of privatising, <coughs> uh, you know, public public goods um, and and so it's it's what so it's not the problem is that we measure the wrong things that's that's all we're doing we have this crazy system where we, if we if we to meet our requirements for uh, to keep under two degrees which you know we were talking about before Alex and I Alex and I that was just you know it's it's probably it's going to be crucial it's going to be a really uh, don't think that two degrees is going to be okay, because it isn't, but even just trying to get to that means a 6% reduction in fossil fuel use or, or, or um, greenhouse gas emissions, same thing, for the next, tw to 2050, 6% reduction every year. GDP and fossil fuel use and, and um, greenhouse gas emissions are locked together, totally locked. There is no disconnect. So to achieve a 6% reduction per year means a 6% reduction in GDP globally, and that's including New Zealand. Think about how that would go down with the politicians or with the economists. A 6%, we, I mean, they get upset if we drop to 2% growth, they get upset and think that it's the end of the world. Imagine a 6% reduction. That's the reality of the amount of change that needs, uh, needs to happen. And that's because we don't, 
because this stupid thing called GDP, because the more people that get sick in Canterbury, <coughs> the more GDP will go up. They have to supply, you know, alternative drinking water to everybody in Canterbury. GDP goes up. So everything negative we do is good for GDP. So until we change that model, I can't see us changing any of the other stuff. Yeah. Oh, are we over? Look, just to l directly follow on about the two percent, and Gabriella, you might be able to remember uh, a refinement here: the two two degrees rise. Um, Christina Figueres's keynote, um, and it is worth looking it up because I'm not a specialist in this area, but she noted that the difference for us in Polynesia um, of between one point two percent and two percent. It changes from it's something something in the tens of percentages of parts of Polynesia would be underwater at the 1.5 percent, but that's in the 90s. For if we touch on two, like it's by the end of the century, we're talking about um, you know the mass migration of people and the effects it has on knowledge and um, all of these kind of things. And New Zealand's one, one of the first countries to have proper uh, legislation now for the receiving of. Um, climate change refugees, we're the first country in the world to develop it. But um, it, it's a strange kind of, in the way that um, the Global North does talk about the situation for us, that we do get, the Polynesia gets left out, the ca catastrophe here. And so it's something, I guess there's a sort of a bigger thing that, um, you know, the dairy, their missions, the obsession with um, the limited bottom lines like, and, and not having eco ecological values and indigenous people on boards and panels to contribute a broader worldview to economics, like it's it's a disaster we're already in. So um, yeah, my statistics you'll need to go and just hook up the, the fine detail of it. But Christina was very clear about the dangers between one point uh, one point five and two for our region. So and for me as an artist, what's scary in practice about it is something along the lines of, and I'm a teacher too at the University of Auckland, and would we be talking about? Um, students moving from all kinds of, um, you know, or thinking that what we should be talking about with students is any meaning that one would like, or are we moving to documenting modes of knowledge? Are we moving to, um, you know, documenting old people talking about the way species moved around? It's scary stuff, and I almost can't bring myself to kind of face what this situation would mean if you go to climate change acceptance rather than, well, I'm a more natural activist, right, so it's easy just to say this bad thing's happening, and be visual about that. But taking practical steps within your discipline area, I'm like having a, it's like rep highly re repellent. So I'm better that I'm working with Natalie and Graham and we're doing something practical <laughs> or I'll get stuck. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much to the three of you. It's been amazing. I'm, I would like to open to the floor now and uh, would you like to speak on the microphone because we are recording. We are recording you. You need to speak here. Yes, we are. Remind me of something else. I've been inspired, but there are two inspirations in going on in the art world in Auckland at the moment about a way that this could be tackled, and the only way, probably. And one is Pussy Riot. They're here, there, um, and the other one is the Gorilla Girls. Now, now, these groups started out in a tough time. They were all anonymous. <coughs> They're still anonymous, although the Pussy Riot people have come out of it having been in prison for a while. But they 
they appeal to people who are not in this crowd here. They're, they appeal to other people. And, you know, that is you people who are teaching young people, see if you can get any of them to put on some sort of masks and really do something. Yeah, really make themselves... Yeah, I know the young, there's young kids, but it's the an anonymity that seems to be... I, I think you could probably think of other examples of that sort of... Yes, yes, you could. Yes, yes. So maybe that is one way that... Um, the, you know, you, you come out with all these figures, all these numbers, you know, my head goes, oh, numbers. Um, and, and I'm here. And so, but other people probably go a bit dizzy with the numbers as well. And, and they need, um, yeah, they need some plastic excitement. Bottles. Mm? Plastic bottles. Like plastic bottles. There you go. Thanks very much. Hi, Mike. Uh, you might remember me. I interviewed you for our radio program about a year ago called Safe and Sound um, Community Radio, which is an animal rights perspective program. Um, just interested in your whole perspective on dairy. I always have followed what you've been doing. It's fantastic. But I'm com I come from it from a different perspective, which is the animal at the heart of the industry. The cow is probably the most abused animal on the planet, you know, maybe next to chickens and pigs. And I think that's why you mentioned the um, power of the industry and what we've seen, I think, in education and everything, is that what we need is an, an analysis of those messages. You know, the incredible power of those Fonterra messages with Richie McCaw coming down in a helicopter like Jesus and the second coming or something and you know delivering the the golden the milk from the golden calf to the kids and all the rest of it first of all we don't need milk you know we're the only species that drinks milk from another animal and um, the abuse of the cow is absolutely hidden you know the bobby two million bobby calves a year taken from their mothers if you've ever seen a cow, a mother cow, lose its calf, you'd never want to drink milk again, you know, let alone what happens to those bobby calves. So it's a shocker, and, you know, it's, it's absolutely hidden. It's one of the great um, ethical and moral crimes of our culture is what we do to those animals, and, and people just don't know it. You know, I, I teach in, in high school, and I sometimes do surveys with kids. Do they know where milk comes from? probably one in a class, unless you've got a class of kids from farms, you know, they don't know that an animal has to get pregnant and lose its baby so we can take their milk. So it's, it's sort of, once again, it's that interconnectedness, it's that treatment of another living being as a commodity. And as just, a, just a, you know, it comes from that Cartesian view that animals are machines with no feeling, and we're still in that mode, even though the science is telling us now that animals are sentient beings. It's just bizarre, and and we're two or three hundred years out of date with the way we treat these animals. You know, it's it's completely ethically and morally bankrupt, and uh, and what we're doing to the environment with that abuse of those animals is un is just unspeakable. <laughs> so yeah, I just I think the education program on that level is it's really hard to get through to people. It's a cognitive dissonance thing. You know, people love their cats and dogs, but they don't understand that a calf feels the same as a cat and a dog, exactly. Kia ora, thank you so much for the conversation. I'm with Alex, I'm Manny, and I'm with Alex at the University of Auckland. So I kind of have a question, actually. 
I'm thinking about our, our place here in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, and I'm noticing around me that as we construct our built environment, it seems to me that we are deconstructing and degrading our natural environment. So what are some of your, um, I guess, advice for ways of championing or um, communicating um, on behalf of that urban ecology, perhaps? I'm thinking of um, things like building on green fields in Pukekohe, which is actually very fertile land for food. I'm thinking of um, the, uh, the potential of byproducts that might enter the Waitamata as a result of construction nearby. So what are your thoughts? How can we protect the urban ecology? There's just, um, you know, it's a, it's a massive issue and, and we know we, we've had the information forever on how to do it in a much more environmentally friendly way. But you get, again, it just always comes back to politics. So you've got a, a you know, a, a government, governments that believe in growth and, and they create a housing crisis so that they can march over the top of all the regulation. You know, we saw that in Christchurch after the earthquake, all the areas that, that turned to mush and, you know, that was clear forever that they were never to be built on. You know, we, so we just, we just, the knowledge is there. We know what to do. It's, 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 you know, trying to get the science back into that stuff or the understanding back. It's just this whole belief that growth is good. We've got a housing crisis. We have to build houses, even though they're mansions and there's no need for all of this stuff we have. We're in, we're in this, um, uh, you know, I'm trying not to be depressing, but I feel like um, we're in a, you know, the guy that's jumped off the, the 12th floor and somebody hears him on the way down going, oh, it's all right. What was everyone worried about kind of thing? I feel we're in free fall. We're looking around. Everything looks all right, so we think it's kind of okay, but we we're, but we're not. And so, the the reckoning will be when we when we have to face up to the reality, and we and we have to house all these people, but not have all the impacts because because we just can't survive it. You only survive doing this because you're bringing you're, you're putting off the reality for the next generation, kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Sorry, I just wanted to make a connection with a, a, a place very far away, but something I, where I live and something I've been working on for the past few years, of um, the, the forest, the Royal Forest of London, it's called Epping Forest. And that's a forest that in the 18th and 19th century nearly disappeared completely. So there was nearby Hainault Forest. So you can imagine that the area around London um, was a kind of wild, wild forest. And Hainault Forest began to be built over by landowners. It began to be um, encroached on, and nearly it disappeared. And then Epping Forest, the same thing started to happen. And actually, it was only a very strange interconnectedness of people that united against Epping Forest um, being built on that ma it managed to stop it. And it's now been, it's called the People's Forest. And it's now been um, saved. Obviously, it's now uh, transformed into a place of leisure, but it's a place that's been completely saved as as common kind of common space. Um, and the connect interconnectedness of people that managed to save it was uh, protest by common commoners, um, and then a kind of quirk that one of the graveyards there was uh, owned by the the City of London, and they connected up together 
with lawyers as well and managed to save the forest. But it was only by this tiny kind of interconnectedness that they managed to save. And this sounds like some faraway place, but actually it's the last kind of lung of, of London, the last wild lung of London. And if that had gone, the kind of ecology that gets lost within that and then the quality of life and the kind of... So maybe, yes, that person is kind of falling down, but you can have these moments where somehow by a kind of quirk of interconnectedness and actually it's only by the cooperation of London being involved in that that they managed to get enough power to save this this common land I don't know if that's a, a bit of hopefulness in it but it's just to say that there are things that are going on now and have that have historical precedents that can have that moment of being of being saved I mean can I just uh, was one thing I was going to yeah yeah I just my my quick one is that that and I think it was what you were touching on that the only way we're going to change this isn't going to be from governments it's going to be ground up it's it's the only way it'll happen and 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 that's it's you know like so I'm I'm I, I work on these government groups but knowing full well that it's ground up that's going to change it we have time for well <laughs> one two Three, four questions. What time do we need to get out of here? We're already late. I think we have a late show, so please come back. We, we, take, we, we take the questions. OK, we start, we start by, can we start by Nanette? And then we pass it on there. It's nothing to do with art, but I do see great hope in the young people in this movement started by a 15-year-old Swedish girl, um, Greta Thunberg, that really is spreading right round, well, not the whole world, but she keeps saying, as Mike is, that politicians want to please the people. And this is why, you know, the drive and they won't listen, but hopefully with the children's movement. And then the criticism that some people are making because they're taking a day off school, that they'd be better learning in the classroom. I suppose what's inspiring there is that, you know, by the action of just um, the ideology around kids' education and then just that act of saying, I'm not going to go. And it's been incredible, the global uptake of that. And it is actually a bit of a, there's something in it in terms of just within your sphere of influence, what it is to say, it, just to abstain from what's on offer, which was education. Um, and it's, yeah, that's an incredibly inspiring sort of scenario. But... It's hard to develop things that are formulaic, rip, rip, um, you know, um, we can tie in with those movements, but when you're looking at different regional specifics, you never know what's going to cause that, and often you don't see it till retrospectively, that's the moment in time when something began to change, and those are the people on the ground, so I don't, um, yeah, I think we just get in behind good movements like that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, there's a, um, there's a, uh, 
uh, scientists behind, uh, like, I don't know what the title is, but I'm one of thousands of New Zealand scientists that have signed a, an open letter saying we support the children who are, who are striking, you know, that we're on their side kind of thing. So it is, it is out there. And, yeah. Who's next? And after that, you've had a Kia ora, my name is Sarah, I'm an artist and I work at Greenpeace. Um, the nuclear free movement was started by putting people putting pressure on local government who then became nuclear free cities who put pressure on the government and we created a nuclear free country. In five months time there is the uh, local body elections and we do have a chance to put, to change those people and get people in there who do care about the environment, especially at the regional council level, where they have the power to um, put things into their regulations that will undo some of the damage or start creating a future that we can all live in. So, <laughs> either vote <laughs> or put pressure on people you know who could either stand or people who are standing, making sure they are standing up for the environment. Kia ora. Um, my name is Chris McBride. Um, I just wanted to um, pick up on a couple of things there about um, you know what what what's happening globally and what what's happening lo locally, particularly in in terms of the rainforest and, and and so on, but also in terms of our oceans and 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 you know the fact that in this last year we've had um, uh, fish that are normally up this way down in Dunedin, you know, we've had problems and that that's a major, 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 major issue. Um, I think the other thing too is, is, is where, when it comes to um, our looking at our whole of environment, we need to look at our relationship with the sea and the land and the waterways um, that we can't do anything without actually seeing that relationship. You've only got to look at um, how Māori in the in the north here have the stories of Tohora, the whale, and and um, Kauri, and how interconnected all of that is. And so I, I really love what you're talking about in terms of that interconnectedness. But we've got to find our way back to that connection with our environment, and we've lost our way. You know, that's really one of the things that I, I, I think is quite serious. But in terms of our forests, um, the challenge is not to grow more pine in this country, but to grow more... Um, to allow uh, farmland to revert back, and some of it will revert back, some of it will need some help. Um, but I, I just sort of think it's sort of like, uh, you know, we need to do our bit down in this part of the world, and, and particularly what you're saying, Alex, about, um, you know, the, the 1.5 um, degree rise is going to see all these lands underneath water. So how do we actually help within our Pacific region do what we need to do in the Pacific, that's also going to have impact on the northern region as well. So, yeah, comment or not comment, but... Thank you. I'm, I'm Jill Sorensen. I'm an artist. And I just wanted to go back to a comment our, a question that you were talking about earlier about what can we do as artists and what um, you know what 
how might you know, what what could we most usefully offer? And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is um, one of the things you were talking about about grassroots change of that. It's really important that we have activism, but it's equally important that we have a grassroots imaginative change that rises up to meet that change. You can't really, I think maybe you can't really have one without the other. And um, so and there's quite a bit of interesting writing around this. Um, Bruno Latour and um, Amanda Boetzke has come to mind um, about an art is in the game of, re of imagination, of reimagining. So I think that maybe to end on a slightly more hopeful note that there is a really um, important and vital role on reimagining because I think maybe we get a bit stuck within the kind of modernist trajectory. And when you said monoculture, I thought you said modernism and I was like, yeah, that's so right. Um, but yeah, but I, <laughs> I realized that eventually, but at first I thought you were talking about modernism and like Bruno Latour's, yeah, idea of, um, you know, maybe that the idea of progress and that we get a bit stuck within that forward and backwards, you know, the progress or regress, but actually we need to reimagine a third place or a, an off to the side, an, another thing, another way of being that we haven't really imagined yet. And these, you know, Māori culture is amazing in New Zealand in terms of giving us you know, help giving us um, a, a guiding light, but it, the actual reimagining by people so that they really, there's a mass swell of people ready to take up change, maybe is something that um, artists can be influential on. So that's my thoughts. Thank you, everybody. We're going to close now. Thank you, Gail and Mike and Alex for your words and everybody else for a contribution. And have a good evening.